Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gunnar Hauser, and this is Ancient Weirdness with yours truly. And we reached a milestone just about a week or so ago in that June 24th is the birthday of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser, if you will, the anniversary of the posting of the very first episode of the show. And I'd like to take just a moment to celebrate that and to celebrate all of you, the listeners. This episode is dedicated to the concept of utopias in antiquity, and we're going to look at a few fictional examples, but we'll also examine a few cases where some kind of real-world community was implemented, if only temporarily. I should begin by stating that the term utopia was never actually used in antiquity, even though it is derived from an idea of a Greek word. Thomas More in the 16th century coined the term utopia, literally meaning no place or nowhere, as the title of a novel that he published in 1516. In the novel, Utopia is an island located off the coast of the Americas, the Americas having been just quote-unquote discovered by Europeans shortly before. The society on the island has solved all social ills, crime, poverty, and so forth, so it's a satirical critique of Moore's own time in Europe. Now, far and away, the most famous ancient literary utopia is the concept of Atlantis. Atlantis in modern times has really taken on a life of its own. I'm sure that if you polled any segment of the general public with the question, was there really a place called Atlantis? you would get a substantial number of people who would say yes, based on nothing more than ideas kicking around in popular culture today. Now, Atlantis is not something we're going to examine in detail in this episode, because the whole point of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser is to delve into the obscure, to the little known. But just a few words will suffice. Atlantis is the name of an ancient society described by the Greek philosopher Plato, and there were a few later authors in Greek and Roman times who elaborated upon the original concept. But descriptions of Atlantis appear in several of Plato's philosophical dialogues, the Timaeus and the Critias. And the society is said to have existed 9,000 years before the time of Plato, located on an island beyond, meaning west of, the Pillars of Hercules, or Heracles to the Greeks, this is the name that was eventually given to the Straits of Gibraltar, connecting the Mediterranean Sea with the Atlantic Ocean. And in the dialogues, Solon, an Athenian politician from the 6th century BC, is said to have transcribed ancient Egyptian records and provided this account of Atlantis. The Atlanteans are said to have gone to war with the Athenians and actually lost that conflict. It being a rather outlandish claim, by the way, to state that Athens had existed that long ago, too. And then Atlantis was destroyed by an earthquake and flooding. Later, ancient authors disagreed over whether or not Plato should be taken at his word that Atlantis was an actual historical place. For example, his student Aristotle thought that Plato had come up with the idea just to get across a moral lesson. Others like Posidonius and Strabo seem more open to the possibility that it was real. It's important to remember that Plato discussed another utopian concept in the dialogue called the Republic and had no notion that this was a place that could actually be created in the real world. Modern scholars have a general consensus that the story of Atlantis was meant to be symbolic on Plato's part, although he may have loosely based it upon some aspects of earlier civilizations. People appointed to, for example, the island of Thera or Santorini, 
where there was a massive volcanic eruption in the Bronze Age that destroyed a Minoan settlement. However, in modern times, many people have taken the story as completely historical and have tried to find Atlantis almost anywhere you can think of around the world. Now, there were some satires, parodies of Plato's Atlantis that were produced in ancient times as well. Another 4th century writer, Theopompus, talks about island societies called the Meropes and the Eusebes. These places, far from perfect, however, the Meropes, a very militaristic society that makes plans to conquer another group called the Hyperboreans, those who live beyond the north wind. Theopompus did not invent the Hyperboreans, they already existed in Greek mythology. An army of 10 million men marches against the Hyperboreans, but then the Meropes see how fortunate and lucky and happy the Hyperboreans are and completely change their minds. The society of the Eusebes and Theopompus, very, very long-lived people who eventually end their lives by dying in laughter. They sound pretty fortunate to me, too. Some information on the Hyperboreans is given by the 5th century Greek historian Herodotus. They are said to live on an island in a kind of northern sea, but it's a temperate climate, this island of Helixia. The late 4th century author Hecateus of Abdera thought that it was actually Britain. There is an account of a Greek sailor, Pythias of Massilia, Massilia being a Greek colony that is now known as Marseille in southern France. In his report of a journey to the north, he includes many details that sound very arctic, like a midnight sun, also ice flows or solidified sea, as he calls them, and he describes reaching an island in the extreme north that he calls Thule. It's possible that Pythias visited places like the Orkney Islands, Iceland, or the coastline of Scandinavia, but we're not sure today. There was another author, Antiphanes of Berge, who said that there was a faraway exotic city where in wintertime, whenever the inhabitants tried to speak, their words would be frozen in midair until the following spring when temperatures increased, a thaw set in, and the words were finally audible. Sounds like that could be either good or bad, depending on the circumstances. But if Antiphanes wanted people to believe this, he should not have put it in a book that he entitled Apista, or Unbelievable Things. We also have stories within this genre connected to the area around Arabia and the Indian Ocean. Iambulus, who wrote somewhere around 100 BC, so we're in the Hellenistic period at this stage, wrote of a place called the Islands of the Sun. This work survives only in a fragment quoted by the later author Diodorus. What survives is pretty intriguing, however. In the story, a merchant named Diambolus is captured somewhere around Arabia and taken to Ethiopia. And the merchant is sent along with another captive to sail south on a boat loaded with six months worth of food. Their mission is to find a blessed island that exists somewhere down there. If the two men are able to find this island, people back home in Ethiopia will experience 60 years of prosperity. As you can probably guess, they did find the island or there wouldn't have been a story to tell about it. To be clear, there was a whole group of islands that they found, and they were obviously in the southern hemisphere because different constellations were visible in the night sky. On the islands of the sun, they have such marvels as a very productive and mild climate. They make bread from reeds and also eat fish, birds, and edible snakes. 
Some rather odd fauna live there, including a turtle-like creature whose blood can be used to glue wounds. The inhabitants of the Islands of the Sun are six feet tall with flexible bodies, but very strong. They have hair only on their heads. And most notably, they each possess two tongues that can carry on separate conversations simultaneously. There's no family structure on the Islands of the Sun. All women and children are held communally. They have a certain test for their newborns where they are placed on the back of a large bird that takes them for a ride. And if they cry or otherwise act excessively frightened by this experience, they are not to be raised in the community. They are abandoned in the wilderness. Sounds very similar to the Spartan screening of male babies. They have very long lifespans. If they are injured, they are supposed to take their own lives. This is also decreed for them if they reach the maximum lifespan of 150 years. The law compels them at that point to lie down on a magic plant, which induces a sleep of death. Now, the Ethiopians had promised Iambolus and the other man that if they did in fact find the island, prosperity would be enjoyed not just by the Ethiopians back home, but also by these two men, that they'd be able to live the rest of their lives in bliss and happiness on the islands of the sun. Then they did something that got them kicked out. They were exiled. It's never stated clearly what they had done to deserve this. They set out again in their tiny craft, were shipwrecked somewhere on the coast of India. Iambolus survived, although his companion did not, but he was able to return to Greece via the Persian Empire. Although no one today accepts this as anything more than a fanciful tale, Greeks were beginning to sail in the area around Arabia and the Indian Ocean sometime around the beginning of the first century BC. A sailor named Hippolys had actually learned the secret of the shifting monsoon winds, which had been known for a very long time to people in that part of the world, and which made it much easier to cross the Indian Ocean in a relatively short time. This same general region is proposed by a writer named Euhemerus in a book called The Sacred History, a book that was incredibly controversial in ancient times. Euhemerus may or may not have actually been a traveler in the seas around East Africa and Arabia. There is a tradition that he was sent there right at the end of the 4th century by Cassander. Cassander was a king of Macedon, one of the successors of Alexander the Great. Euhemerus is said to have discovered an island near Arabia called Pankia. This island was inhabited by three tribes, organized into three social castes, priests, farmers, and soldiers. All is not perfect here either, because a colony of pirates lives on one side of the island. That's why they need soldiers for defense. The priests control the apportionment of land. The priests also judge any kind of capital case, so obviously there is crime. But what's most intriguing about his idea of Pankia is that it is also a place where there is a temple to the god Zeus, in a very idyllic setting, surrounded by trees, birds, a refreshing and healing spring that produces water called the water of Helios or water of the sun. Euhemerus sees a golden pillar at the temple of Zeus inscribed with the names of Zeus and the other gods. And the idea proposed in Euhemerus' sacred history is that all of the Greek gods and goddesses were originally human beings. Human beings with extraordinary powers, but they were still human, and they died. But all of them have been deified after their deaths. And Euhemerus says that the god Zeus in particular was the one responsible for this, that he traveled the world, having been born on the island of Crete. He later returned to Crete and died there. 
But he established religious worship for himself and his fellow gods and goddesses. So the gods themselves are responsible for the religions that worship them. Some people think Euhemerus was proposing an idea to unify humanity here, but he was viciously attacked for proposing that the gods were not really gods, that they were just extraordinary humans. Some have suggested that Euhemerus based his fictional locale of Pankia on the Lapari Islands located off the coast of Sicily. For several centuries before the Roman era, the inhabitants of the Lapari Islands redistributed their property every 20 years. We do hear about philosophers actually proposing to create planned perfect communities. Cassander, who I mentioned just a few minutes ago, had a brother named Alexarchus who wanted to create a place called Sky City or Onopolis. He wanted to place it on the peninsula of Mount Athos, where many Eastern Orthodox monasteries are even today. But the idea was abandoned once they realized that the water supplies would not be sufficient for a community there. Interestingly enough, an architect named Dinocrates had previously proposed that a massive seated figure of Alexander the Great be sculpted on that very mountain. In the mid-3rd century AD, Plotinus, the Neoplatonic philosopher, became very good friends with the emperor Gallienus and proposed that a kind of philosopher's colony be established with imperial funds in the region of Campania in southern Italy. However, this was a time when the Roman Empire was sorely beset by invaders and various crises, and the idea was never implemented. One attempt really was made, however, by a leader who was opposed to Rome, and this was back when Rome was still a republic. Right around the middle of the 2nd century BC, in a small Hellenistic kingdom called Pergamum. This was a state on the west coast of what is now Turkey, named after its capital city. Though much smaller in territory than the other Hellenistic kingdoms, it was very wealthy and prosperous. Pergamon also became a center of culture. They had a library that was second only to the Library of Alexandria. The royal family of Pergamon, called the Attalids, after Attalus, their founder, were early allies of the Romans. The Romans, of course, always used allies for their own purposes as well. In a battle with the Seleucid king, Antiochus III, which took place at Magnesia in 190 BC, Pergamene troops assisted on the Roman side. In the peace treaty that ended this war, a treaty with terms that were very humiliating for Antiochus III, by the way, the Attalids were rewarded with what amounted to a doubling of their territory. And it became a state about the size of Great Britain. So now we come to the year 133 BC and the king of Pergamum, Attalus III. Very intriguing figure, Attalus III, described as kind of a mad king who was, in one sense, very intelligent, interested in science, metallurgy, mathematics, but also someone who researched poisons, and is said to have murdered several of his own relatives by means of poison because he suspected that they were going to try to take the throne away from him. However, he then made an excessive show of mourning their deaths. Well, Attalus III had no children, and this presents a problem for any kingdom when there is no royal heir. Upon his death, following the standard rule of Hellenistic kings and queens, he was deified, but then his will was opened and was read. And it stated that the majority of the kingdom, the royal estates, were now the possessions of the people of Rome. 
He did state in the will that the cities of the kingdom of Pergamum and the temples were to stay independent, but the Romans conveniently ignored that. As far as they were concerned, they were now entitled to the entire kingdom. Well, the majority of the Pergamene population were none too happy about this, realizing that they were about to become subjects of Rome. And so appeared Aristonicus, an illegitimate half-brother of the deceased king. Aristonicus rose a banner of rebellion. He put out a general call to the slaves and dependent laborers in the kingdom to join him, promising them freedom if they did. He organized an army as well as a naval force, captured several cities, although the capital city of Pergamum itself did not wish to join Aristonicus. At least the leading nobles of the city preferred not to. They took the Roman side. Along with the Roman forces that were dispatched against him, Aristonicus also had to face invasion from several of the surrounding kingdoms like Pontus and Bithynia, their own rulers thinking that they could actually carve out a piece of the pie. The Romans sent several officials at the head of expeditionary forces to enforce the provisions of the will and bring Pergamum under Roman control. But Aristonicus defeated the first one, Publius Licinius Crassus. Aristonicus got his head as a nice little trophy out of that. But after a defeat of his fleet, Aristonicus retreated inland to a stronghold at a place called Theatira. He called his followers at this point citizens of the sun, and he had been joined by a kind of renegade philosopher, Blossius of Cumae, Cumae being a Greek city in Italy. Blossius was technically a follower of Stoicism, but he had previously been linked to a Roman politician, Tiberius Gracchus, who had been killed in mob violence back in Rome, the first real example of violence being used to solve a political dispute in the Roman Republic, and it's generally seen as the beginning of the end. The start of a downward spiral that resulted in civil wars, the wars between Marius and Sulla and Caesar and Pompey, that eventually brought down the Republic itself. Blossius of Cumae was said by some to have inspired Tiberius Gracchus's attempts at social reform in Rome, with things like land distribution, which caused such a violent reaction from the old aristocracy. Tiberius actually got a law passed during the year 133 when he held the office of Tribune, decreeing that public land be distributed to poor and landless citizens. Of course, this is the same year that Attalus III died, and when the terms of the will were announced in Rome, Tiberius Gracchus also proposed that the cash that Attalus III had left behind in his legacy be distributed among the poor citizens of Rome as well. He was then accused of having accepted as gifts from the Pergamene envoy the royal diadem or crown and purple robe that had belonged to Attalus III, the implication being that he planned to set himself up as king of Rome. There had not been a king of Rome in centuries. Eventually, an actual mob of senators led by the chief priests or Pontifex Maximus, Scipio Nausicaa, along with their servants, slaves, and paid henchmen, attacked Tiberius Gracchus and a large group of his followers, clubbed them all to death, and threw their bodies into the Tiber River. By traditional Roman standards, this was a blasphemous act because tribunes were supposed to be sacrosanct during their year in office. Anyone harming them, much less killing them, would be subject to a curse and could be killed by any other Roman with impunity. But that was conveniently ignored in this case. Blossius had been put on trial 
There's a single quote by Blasius preserved in the tradition. It's in Plutarch's biography of Tiberius Gracchus, where at the trial, Blasius stated that he would have done anything Tiberius Gracchus had ordered him to do. One of the inquisitors then asked, well, if he had ordered you to set fire to the Capitol, meaning the Temple of Capitoline Jupiter, would you have done so? This is the ancient equivalent of if everyone was jumping over a cliff, would you have followed? Blasius replied that there was no way that Tiberius Gracchus would have ever given such an order, but when pressed on the matter, he admitted that, well, if Tiberius Gracchus had ordered that, it would have been for the good of Rome. One would think that this admission would have guaranteed his condemnation, but he was acquitted, he left Italy, and he showed up in Pergamum and became an advisor to Aristonicus. The Romans began to tire of resistance here. So they sent a very brutal officer, Marcus Perperna, who had just very violently suppressed a slave uprising on the island of Sicily a few years before. Marcus Perperna was able to besiege Aristonicus and his followers in their stronghold. Aristonicus surrendered after the Romans poisoned the water supply of Theatira. Aristonicus was taken back to Rome in chains and strangled in the state prison called the Tullianum on the Capitoline Hill, while Blasius is said to have committed suicide. Many centuries later, the 6th century AD to be precise, deep in the heartland of Persia, there was a priest of the religion of Zoroastrianism, Mazdak, who by virtue of being a priest was part of the political establishment of the time. This was the time of the second great Persian empire of antiquity, the Sasanian Empire. Mazdak is said to have made proposals for distribution of property, economic equality, and all ties of men and women being communal. He seems to have convinced the Sasanian king, Kavad I, that this was a good idea, that this should be implemented. However, it caused such a backlash that the king was deposed by rebels. Now, he was able to regain power a few years later with the help of a foreign army. But it seems that Mazdak and his followers had to go. So there are stories of Mazdakites being buried alive with their feet sticking out of the ground like a kind of human garden. Mazdak himself was hung upside down and shot to death with arrows. This was after, to his horror, he had beheld the garden, so to speak, having been told ahead of time, you're going to see some trees that you've never seen before. And on that cheerful note, we've come to the end of this episode. I look forward to joining you all again next time on Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.